in my house love Freddie. In fact, my two-year-old Piper Joy uh, last night was like, I told her, you know, I'm going to church tomorrow. She said, with Freddie the Moose? So she, she loves Freddie. I love Freddie. We love you too, Ricky. Um, but Freddie kind of steals the stage there. Uh, I am John, and I'm the deacon for worship here at the church, and it is my joy to open God's word with you this morning. Would you turn to Romans chapter 11, and we're going to look at the last three verses in a few minutes. Um, it'll be a second before we get there, so keep your finger there. Um, I titled my message this morning, The Knowledge of God Leads to Worship of God. My hope for our time today would be to help us see that knowledge and emotion are not mutually exclusive traits for Christians. I want us to see that Paul sees, I want us to see what Paul sees as he writes this text. I want us to see that a robust theology or our knowledge of God will lead to God glorifying worship in all seasons of life. And that's great news for us as we end 2020. So before we read our text, I'd like to introduce you to two characters that will hopefully help, uh, help us navigate this topic. The first is the theologizer. This person walks into a restaurant, a restaurant like the popular character from a TV show and says, I'd like all the bacon and eggs you have. This person studies God's word and has a library full of commentaries. They can quote you chapter and verse of the Bible on command, and they can define all of the multi-syllable, gigantic theological terms. They can defend the faith. Their motivation for this may have started out of a love for God and a deep longing to know all they could about God. But somewhere along their way, their motivation became winning arguments. Maybe they wanted to make sure that they had the best argument for why the exclusivist claims of Christianity are irrefutable. They want to be able to give an account and to win in the face of theological opposition. They'd seek to be a champion of the faith. The theologizer goes to church on Sunday, but stands in the back with their hands in their pockets during the singing, looking down on the artists on the stage, thinking, we shouldn't have a stage anyway, analyzing every word of every line and every song that is being sung. They can't wait for the sermon because that's the real meat. But when the sermon comes, they spend the whole sermon taking notes, furiously deciding if what the pastor is saying is biblically accurate, finding a fault and making a beeline for the pastor to tell him all he got wrong as soon as the service ends. The theologizer is well-equipped to tell the Christian and the non-Christian every way they are wrong, according to God's word, but maybe they miss the point of what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. Maybe this person gets all fired up when Paul calls out the sinner, when Jesus turns the tables over in the temple and is quick to call on these examples time and time again in defense of maybe their, the posture of their own hearts. But maybe, just maybe, they could be served by a study of the patterns of worship in Scripture and the application of the knowledge that they possess. The theologizer. The second character I'd like to introduce you to is the emotionalist. This person walks into a restaurant and orders ice cream and all the rainbow sprinkles they have. The emotionalist is the one who approaches the Bible from a, what have you got for me today, God? 
perspective. The emotionalist skips over the, dis- the difficult parts of Scripture. The emotionalist doesn't like to talk about sin because it makes them feel icky and uncomfortable. The emotionalist will avoid all conflicts because they don't want to make people feel bad. The emotionalist might seek out only the most positive and encouraging of all the worship music because of the way that it makes them feel. You see, worship music can make them forget about any problems in their life that they might have. It can make them forget about what's going on in their life that's uncomfortable depending on the music that they choose to listen to. The emotionalists can't wait to get to church early on Sunday so they can throw their hands up in in the air and sing at the top of their lungs. The moment the synthesizer starts, they look to their neighbor and say, do you feel the Holy Spirit? He's coming. They'll sing the happiest, most joyful songs in worship. They'll sing at the top of their lungs. Then they'll feel great after the time of singing. But then comes the sermon. Please, God, they pray. Make sure it encourages me today. Just need some encouragement. And then the pastor preaches a topic that makes them feel convicted. The word of God and the Holy Spirit bring conviction on the hearer, as good preaching sometimes does. And instead of seeking out where the Lord might want to do a sanctifying work in their life, they ignore the feeling, or they get mad at the feeling, and they jump back in their car, ignore everything that just went on, turn on the encouraging music, and try to forget about the feeling of conviction that just came over them. If these characters feel kind of personal, maybe that's a good thing. But I can tell you that they are personal for me because I am and I have been the theologizer. I am and I have been the emotionalist. The danger for both of these characters is that their view of God is too small. The theologizer is afraid of being too emotional in worship. The theologizer views emotion as weakness. The theologizer may view emotion as a gateway or an entry into some type of heresy. Or maybe it's more simple than that. Maybe the theologizer is just interested in mining for facts, the old history book that is the Bible, instead of approaching it as the life-changing, living, and active word of God. The danger for this character, the theologizer, is that an overfocus on the deepest parts of theology can lead to a cold, lifeless faith that's more like intellectual assent rather than true worship. The emotionalist looks at an overemphasis on theology and knowledge as stifling and a barrier to feeling the love of God. Seeking out knowledge of God may feel too judgmental or too confusing. The danger that faces this character is that an overfocus on emotional experience detached from God's word can lead to a shallow faith with no anchor. What will be helpful for both of these characters would be to look at the Apostle Paul. It would help us see that what we know of God can and should make us emotional. Knowledge and emotion, again, are not mutually exclusive character traits for the Christian. God is big enough to hold both of these things in balance. God gives us the gift of knowledge and intellect. He gives us the gift of his word. He gives us the gift of theology. He gives us the gift of theologians who are able to take deep and profound theological truths and make them uh, understandable. 
But he has also given us artists and songwriters and singers, musicians that take deep theological truths and make them simple so that we can declare the joy and the mercy and the faithfulness of God together. You see, the body of Christ needs both knowledge and emotion. We shouldn't be afraid of going deeper in our knowledge of God. We shouldn't be afraid of singing out, of lifting our hands, of clapping, of kneeling in worship of the living God. These things are both gifts to be stewarded and enjoyed regularly. But the balance between the two is where we'd like to live. Our theology, what we know of God, must lead us to doxology, praise of God, and then back to deeper knowledge of God and back to praise of the living God. When we look at what God has done in working salvation for his people, the right response is to sing praises to him. So, our text today is a song in the middle of a lot of theology. So let's stand and read it together. Would you stand as we read God's holy and authoritative word? Our text this morning is Romans eleven thirty three 33 to 36. This is Paul's doxology. <clears throat> oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the church says, Heavenly Father, help us see this this morning. Help us dig in to knowledge of you and then respond in worship. Help us to see that from you and through you and to you are all things. And that is the best news for us this morning. To you be the glory forever. Christ's name we pray, amen. Take a seat as we dig into God's word together. <clears throat> Pastor H.B. Charles, in his sermon on this text, starts uh, with a kind of a word-by-word dissection of the text, and he says, the first word we're going to look at is O. Oh. Paul says, O. Oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I think this is a great point because it's almost like Paul is groaning here. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul is about to drive home the point that there is no possible way for us to see and understand God, everything God sees and understands. When Paul thinks about the depths of God's riches, he lets out this sigh. Oh, the depth, right? What he's thinking about here is the unfathomable depth of God's riches, which means if you were to jump in a pool of God's riches, you'd never reach the bottom. If you were to climb a mountain of God's riches, you would never, ever, ever reach the top. The fact of the matter is that there is nothing on the planet that God doesn't own. He's never looking at his bank account for fear of overdrafting. There's no resource he'll ever run out of. So when Paul continues, he includes God's wisdom and knowledge 
in these riches. R. Kent Hughes describes it this way. Knowledge is the gathering of information. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. So let's think about what Paul was thinking about as he stops and marvels at the glory of God and the depth of God's wisdom and riches. He's thinking here about the Israelites. In that day, the Israelites were known as God's chosen people. There's no way he's going to turn his back on them, not after all they've been through. And yet what we see here is that Israel rebels against God and God allows it. He hardens their hearts, it says. If I were alive, then it would seem as though God's plan was over at that point. Weren't these your chosen people, God? Weren't these the people that were supposed to be special? What the Israelites didn't see yet, though, is that God would use this rebellion for their good and his glory. He would use this rebellion of his chosen people to graft the Gentiles, outsiders, into the family tree. Then, then, eventually, spoiler alert, he will bring the Israelites back. When we look at the depth of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, the hope is that our response would be the same as Paul's. We see God's plan, which nobody could have seen, and we marvel at his glory and wisdom and knowledge. So what does applying wisdom with knowledge look like? So I love to rock climb. And the last few times I've rock climbed, I've gone with my friend Ben, who is an AMGA certified rock climbing guide and instructor. He has a vast knowledge of knots and ropes and equipment and rock. But having all this knowledge is not what makes him a great guide. Lots of people know lots of things. What makes Ben a great guide is that he knows who he's guiding and where he's guiding them. It's his wisdom combined with his vast knowledge that makes him a great guide. So when I climb with Ben, the act of actually climbing is difficult, but I'm not worried or anxious because I trust his expertise and his ability to apply that expertise wisely on mountains and in the backcountry. But here's the thing. God made Ben. Just like God made every expert in everything on the planet. He knit them together in their mother's wombs. He brought them up out of dust. He spoke them into existence. He knows literally everything about everyone and everything in the universe. What makes God great, though, and the thing that should cause us to be overwhelmed to the point of worship is this. God not only knows all things, his wisdom and plans are untraceable, meaning he always has what's best for us in mind, even when we don't, can't, or won't see it. God's wisdom is perfect, and his knowledge is perfect. So let's look again at Israel. When their hearts are hardened to him, God looks to the Gentiles, the outsiders of the faith, and says, you're chosen too. He brings Paul, a persecutor of Christians, to the to his knees, he blinds him and says, you are going to take my good news to the outsiders. Then God uses the outsiders, the Gentiles, to bring his chosen people back. This is and was God's plan. This is what Paul is marveling at. The fact that there's no way on the planet anyone would have seen that coming. God in his infinite wisdom, and this is the good news for us today, church. So listen, God in his infinite wisdom made a way for you and for me through that story 
to be called children of God. Paul truly saw God, and his response was worship. When we truly see God, our best response is worship. When we see how God saves, we worship. This big God created this tiny little planet with these tiny little beings called humans on it. He created this world and everything in it, and he called it good. And then he created humans, and he called us very good. And he gave us a job. He told us to fill the earth and subdue it. He told us to care for and cultivate it. But then we messed up. He gave us a rule, and we broke the rule because we thought we knew better. We took for granted God's very good gifts. Because we broke that rule, we have consequences. We can never do enough, be good enough, or give enough to make up for that rule we broke. But the good news is that God, in his infinite wisdom, sent Jesus to take on human form, to be born, to live life, to understand joy and pain and fear and laughter and sadness and elation, and then to freely give himself so that you and I could be called sons and daughters adopted into his family, to have the, eternity, to, to the, the opportunity to spend eternity with God on the new heavens and the new earth in full communion with our God. Church, this is not just good news for historical figures. This is good news for us right here, right now. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you need to know this. Otherwise, the rest of this message won't feel like good news and it won't make sense. Earlier in this letter, in Romans 3, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is our condition as humans, period. There's no getting around it. In Romans 6, he says, for the wages of sin is death. This is bad news, and it's hard to hear and hard to stomach in a culture like ours where everybody gets a trophy. Now look, church, if you're a Christian, this is, this is the part that I need to hear. This is the part that we need to hear together. If you're a Christian... Sometimes it feels like we can be judgmental jerks just making sure everybody knows the bad news. If you're a non-Christian, you're here today, and that's been your experience, I'm sorry. Because the thing that brings us all together here today, right now, is the good news. The good news is that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, bad news, right? But good news, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What incredible news this is. If the Lord is stirring your heart today, is calling you to him, repent, turn your life to him. He promises he is faithful and just to forgive you from all your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will clean you up. You don't have to clean yourself up. He will clean you up. He will draw you to himself. That is incredible news. Christian, if you're here this morning and that is stale to you, time to wake up. That is good news for you. And it's our job to tell people about it. Evangelical isn't a political term. Evangelical is people who tell others about the good news of Jesus, period. That is good news. 
So if you are not a Christian today, we would love nothing more than for the Lord to call you to himself. So if you have questions about that, talk to us. Talk to one of us. Talk to anybody around here because they're evangelical Christians who want to tell you about the good news. So church, if somebody asks you about the good news, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Come on now. Tell them. Say tell them. Look, I'm a middle school band director, and so I need a little bit of feedback, right? If somebody asks you about the good news, what are you going to do? Thank you. Amen. This room is full of sinners whose only hope was and is and will always be Christ and Christ alone. That's what gives us joy. I'm amazed that after thousands of years, God is still actively working to save his people right now. So what does this show us about God? This shows us that we don't always see the way God is working. We may not understand using our own knowledge what God is trying to do or why God is working things a certain way. But what we can trust and why we worship is because we know that he always has the end game in mind. He always has the full story in view so we can trust that what he is doing is for our good and his glory. God is sovereign over all things. And knowing this moves us to worship. Paul puts an exclamation point on this. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? We think about uh, the text that he's referencing here. He's referencing Isaiah, but he's also referencing Job. And Job, after his life falls apart, is questioning God, and then God reminds Job that God doesn't owe him anything. God doesn't owe us anything. In fact, the only thing we deserve is punishment, Because there's nothing we can tell God that he doesn't already know. There's nothing we can give God that would put him in our debt. And every bit of mercy that God shows us is undeserved. And that gives us every reason to celebrate. Every reason to worship. There's a song I love by Aaron Keyes. And it's called King Forevermore. One of my favorite lines in this song says, Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And he is faithful through it all. I love this line because it reminds me that there's nothing happening on our planet throughout history, now, or to come that's going to happen that causes God to go, I'm done saving. He's not going to throw in the towel. He's going to keep coming after his kids. It's good news because of Christ. And the more we see this, the more we let this truth dig deep into our bones, the more this gives us cause to worship, just like Paul. So Paul, knowing all these things, knowing the great lengths God went to to save his people, says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. When we see God's glory, we worship. This line is one of the, if not the most simple, profound statements in all of Scripture. From God, through God, and to God are all things. Let's take a minute and look at God for a second. God spoke the universe into existence. 
We just had this kind of unique moment where after hundreds of years, Jupiter and Saturn, the planets, aligned, and they gave us the, what some people called the Star of Bethlehem, right? These are two planets in a galaxy that is enormous. These are two planets that are so far away that we don't know how to get to them before we die. These are two planets that came together to look like a bright star that God literally created out of nothing. Our universe is on an ever-expanding trajectory. It's getting bigger and bigger. Stars are being born. Stars are dying all the time. Our universe expands and expands and expands, and this came from the breath of God. Spurgeon says this, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. So what Spurgeon is rightly saying here is that God is sovereign over all things. God holds together the universe. All creation is from God, is sustained through God, and will ultimately find its end in God. And this is where the rubber starts to meet the road for us when we look at Paul. Paul wrote a gigantic chunk of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is God's authoritative word. This guy, Paul, knew God. He knew a lot of stuff about God. He knew that spreading the good news of God's mercy on rebellious people was worth any suffering he would endure in this life. And Paul suffered. Paul did not live a life free of pain. This man was tortured and beaten and persecuted and thrown in prison and eventually killed for his faith and preaching the gospel. He's the guy that says to live is Christ and to die is gain. He lived it. It's not just a bumper sticker. When Paul and Silas went to prison, what did they do? Do you remember? They sang. They sang. Acts 16 says, they sang and prayed. And then what happened? Earthquake, jail breaks, doors open, they sit there. Why do they sit there? Because God brought the jailer to them. He said, how do I know Christ? He turned his life to Christ there and then went and his family got saved. God knows his ways are higher than our ways. Paul, what does this have to do with with Paul? What does this have to do with knowledge of God leading the worship of God? Paul used his vast knowledge of God to call out sin. Yes. Paul called out with righteous indignation and frustration, those who would rebel against God. Paul speaks in really strong and kind of offensive terms sometimes about the consequences of sin. He speaks in strong terms about how Christians are to act towards each other in terms of being careful not to let the enemy divide us. But here's the thing about Paul. His main purpose was making sure that as many people as possible heard and could respond to the saving grace found in Jesus. And Paul, countless times in the face of unimaginable persecution, took all of that knowledge 
and applied it by worshiping the living God. Paul's knowledge about God led to a life-changing worship of God, especially in the darkest moments of his life, humanly speaking. So Paul marvels that this God who spoke the universe into existence, who holds every atom and molecule of the universe together, the God who will one day bring about new heavens and a new earth, this God cares enough for his people that he would go to such extraordinary lengths to draw his children to himself. So the Apostle Paul, overwhelmed, says, To God be the glory forever. Then he puts an exclamation point on it. Amen. Church, would you repeat after me? To God be the glory forever. Now let's put the exclamation point on it. Amen. Paul sees us, see, helps us see that a robust theology, a deep knowledge of God, should lead us to a God-glorifying worship in all seasons of life, which brings us back to our big idea and to our characters from the beginning. Remember, the whole point for us today is to see that our knowledge of God should lead us to worship of God. If you find yourself in a particular season of life where you most closely relate to the theologizer, what should you do? We've seen that Paul's deep knowledge of God led him to worship of God. So, with that in mind, there's three things that I'd like to, um, that I think would be helpful for you. First, go to Scripture without an in-depth study agenda. Start with the Psalms. Read them as they were meant to be read, poetry and song. A couple of years ago, I picked up a reader edition of the Bible. It doesn't have any chapters and verses in it. It doesn't have any footnotes or endnotes. It's just the text. All these things are great. Footnotes, study notes, endnotes, these are all great things. But if you tend toward a clinical dissection of Scripture, this would be a great tool to help you with a simplified approach to Scripture so that you can allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, so you can allow the Holy Spirit to speak what he wants to speak to you without any distractions. Second, when you do study, which is a good thing, let's not miss that point, consider seeking out a song or two that might help you turn your knowledge to worship and apply it. For me, this looked like finding that song, King Forevermore. When I hear that line, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, he is faithful through it all, it brings the sovereignty of God into a simple comforting truth that's a good reminder in difficult times. That's what good worship music should do for us. It should turn profound theological truths to simple things we can hang on to and carry with us. Look, I want to stop here for just a second. I, I have this vivid memory in my mind, two vivid memories that are coming to, to mind. One, I'm sitting around uh, in a hospital room with a dear friend who is about to see Jesus. And that hospital room filled with friends and family members. Many of them knew the deep theological truths. There's doctors and nurses and co-workers who came to that hospital room that didn't know Jesus. And we sat in that hospital room for hours with our friend knowing he was about to go see Jesus and we sang the truths of scripture. We sang the gospel together. 
in a dark night of the soul for those family members, for those of us who miss that guy. Those simple, profound truths, we were able to sing together, and God used that to both comfort us and to bring the gospel to people who didn't know it. So seek out a song or two that might help you take these deep truths and apply them. Third, learn from and love those who are regularly clear, public, and consistent in their joy in the Lord. Don't just watch them. Talk to them. I've got people in my mind and in my life that I think of that are in this category for whom their joy is contagious. They can't stop jumping once the music starts because they know that their joy is in the Lord. Go talk to those people and ask them why they're so joyful. I know many of them will tell you because of Jesus. And they're not just joyful in the easy times. They're joyful in every time. Third. That was third. (laughs) Next, the emotionalist. If you find yourself in a particular season of life where you most closely relate to the emotionalist, what should you do? Again, we've seen that Paul's deep knowledge of God led him to worship of God. So what does this look like for you? First, it might be time to dig a bit deeper. It might be time to grab a beginning theology book or a study Bible and then take a book of the Bible and study it. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Study the Bible for however long it takes. Let the Lord guide you through that. And when you get to a difficult part of that book, don't skip it. Dig deeper into it. Some of the sweetest, most profound moments with the Lord can be found through deep study of his word. Second, be discerning in the songs you sing and listen to. It's easy to let the music be what uplifts you. Look, I have degrees, two degrees in music. I love music. It uplifts me. But as Christians, the music is a great gift from God, but the truth of the gospel should be primarily what lifts us up and lifts our countenance and is our anchor in the difficult times. This is what the Apostle Paul does. Third, learn from and love those who are deep divers into the word. Don't just watch them. Talk to them. Ask them questions. Ask them how they find joy in the deep study of the things of God. Ask them how that brings them joy. Ask them about their study patterns. I also have a number of people in my life that I think of that are in this category, and I'm super grateful for their example. And finally, for for all of us, a reminder. Plumb the depths of God's word. Never stop going to God's word. The anchor of God's word can and will hold you fast in the darkest nights of the soul. I would encourage you to spend time remembering and recounting all of the ways God has been faithful in your life, in your family's lives, and your friends' lives. Then do what Paul does and remember God's saving grace to Israel and the Gentiles and why that's good news for you. Remember this and rejoice in the Lord. He is good. His mercy endures forever. His faithfulness in all generations. At the end of 2020, an admittedly hard year for so many of us, these things can and should compel us, like they compelled the Apostle Paul, to say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the church said, we sang a song earlier today, 
Verse 3 says this, When on that day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. And as the band comes and leads us, we are about to sing all the redeemed washed by his blood. Come, rejoice in his great love. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. Christ has defeated every sin. Cast your burdens now on him. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. 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 Let the word of Christ be the thing that lifts your spirits today. Let the word of Christ be the thing that brings you joy in the darkest seasons. Let us now stand and turn our hearts and tune our hearts to sing God's praise. Would you stand as we sing?